but here's one, and you kind of finished on it, but I'm going to ask you to be a little more practical. If all the elders, the trust has been built, and there's a good cohesiveness, um, and, but you're faced with a decision. What's and the, the process? And it's not just, you know, who's going to replace the, the doorknob on the back door, but it's maybe the times of meeting or adding on a new ministry. What are the practical things when you got a plurality where there's not one person who makes the final decision? How do you do Great that? Great question. Uh, that's the slide I skipped over, so I'm not going to we'll put it back up there, but I will read, read it, and you, will, uh, you have this, this information on the screen. Um, and again, this isn't a template we necessarily follow. It's more as I reflect back over the years on okay. what I've seen kind of what I, in retrospect. So we will each weigh in with our convictions or opinions about the issue at hand. Uh, everybody's opinion is seen as uh, equally valuable, whether they're, uh, they've been through theological seminary or not. In fact, I think the w wisest two men on our elder board are not formally trained in a seminary. I think I could honestly say that. Um, secondly, we listen carefully to each person's viewpoint and to the rationale for his perspective. Thirdly, we seek to be highly sensitive to the general direction the discussion is going, trusting that the Holy Spirit's superintending the process. And then fourth, a pastor elder whose viewpoint becomes increasingly out of step with the trajectory of the discussion willingly defers to the growing consensus of the group. That's a key, key thing. Now, here's something that assumes that uh, uh, if you've reflected much on this, it's going to be an important consideration. That is our theology of God's will. If I really believe that God has a specific will for every big decision an elder board makes, for example, should we change our service times? Should we hire a full-time worship leader? Should we do this? Should we, should we uh, engage in a building program? Does God want us to do this or not? If I believed God had a perfect will for that. And I believe that I knew what that was. It would be very difficult for me to let go of God's will and let the discussion run its course. And so my theology of God's will is a little bit iconoclastic. I'm not sure God cares much in the final analysis about a lot of those decisions. What I am absolutely convinced he cares about is the process by which those decisions are made, as I'm describing it to you here, and the humility and relational integrity with which leaders interact with each other and with which the church is informed as, as decisions are made and the process goes about. And if that's undertaken in a biblical, godly way, I'm convinced God pretty much blesses his church uh, time and time again with the decisions that are made. Uh, that may be an out-of-the-box uh, way to think about God's will, but in retrospect, that's kind of where I land on this. It's a uh, I did singles ministry for years and, uh, and uh, had some real interesting scenarios with singles who were convinced they had God's will for their lives. One fellow told me that God told him a, he was going to marry another girl in the singles group. Problem is God hadn't told her that. Uh, and he said, you know, I know I'm going to, and then Sunday, if she sits in front of me, that's going to be a sign, you know. And sure enough, she sat right in front of him where she always sat in church. And uh, <laughs> so... Uh, so I had to take him to 1 Corinthians 7.39 where Paul says to a woman who's widowed, she's free to be married to whomever she wills. Not who God wills, who she wills. Only in the Lord, as long as she chooses another Christian. And God's delegated these kind of decisions to us. Now, once you're married, it's God's will. All right? You're not turning back. Uh, that's clearly in his moral will. But so, so there's more to this than, than meets the eye. So moving down the list, 
The last one, once a decision has been made, we unanimously own it, and that's a key thing. Uh, and so there are decisions that don't get made. I said we've never had to vote, but there's things that never, decisions that never got made. We just didn't make them because we couldn't come to consensus, and they weren't the kind of decisions that had to be made. Okay, let, let me ramp it up just a little bit. Mm -hmm. Have you ever had the case, or how would you deal with the case if one brother who's not out of sorts, not out of fellowship, there's, there's a trust and everything, but one brother just feels so strong that he can't go along with the consensus of the rest. Like, how do you deal with something like that? We haven't had that. It's never just been one. It's been more than one, which has been enough to shut down the, the direction. So I don't know quite how we would deal with that. We'd okay. have to come to that, cross that bridge as we come. But one of the things that uh, um, one of our, he's been our longest pastor, Elder Denny, uh, he really emphasizes not just the importance of the biblical qualifications, those, those should be a given, but also uh, that there's some philosophical uh, agreement among elders about uh, uh, the church's position in the community, things like that. We did have a pastor elder who was much more kind of protectionist, had much more of a fortress mentality about how much Christians should expose their children to the world, this and that, and the rest. And so you know, when there's those philosophical differences can be problematic, mm. uh, yeah. but uh, we haven't had a one-man-out thing yet, so I'll let okay. you know when it happens. Okay, keep us posted. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I would imagine if you have the, the trust that's built up the way you talked about it, the regular praying together and building each other up, that if one person uh, felt they couldn't go along, that I, I would imagine the rest of them would stop and say, hey, we better not bull ahead if one of our brothers that we trust is so hesitant, maybe God is speaking through right, them. Right, that, you know, yeah, that would yeah. be a possibility here. And to turn that around, maybe the reason why we haven't had that is because that person has sat there and realized, you know, I've been with these guys through thick and thin. I can, well, I'm going to trust them on this one. Okay. So, I mean, it, it all, it, trust works both ways, doesn't it? Okay. You know? Now, let, let's take the decision-making a little bit different. Um, are all the decisions made in the holy huddle of the elders? At what point do you bring the congregation in? And how do you do decision making? Under what circumstances and, to, and how does that work? Yeah, um, I, I will back up and say we have one fellow who's full time. And so because he's full time at the church, he has more time to deal with office and administration in the church. So uh, he, it's, it's delegated to him to come up with our agendas and to deal with decisions and represent us that don't require us to sit around and talk about. Um, the congregation, uh, we have uh, what we call a leadership community, which is probably 30 or 40 people who are involved, small group leaders, people teaching in children's ministry, all the leaders of those various ministries, youth ministry, uh, we're our worship leaders, we have a rotation right now. And uh, every couple, monthly now, at least every couple months, we get them together for a meal and, and kind of update them on any major uh, decisions that are being considered or being made. And if those are, are major enough before we make them, we'll ask for input and thoughts from, from them. As far as the congregation at large, we don't hold business meetings. Once a year, we have a vote, and that vote is simply an affirmation of our budget and a reaffirmation of our elders for the year. Our elders do not rotate through terms, but they are reaffirmed by the congregation uh, each year. And if there is even one person who dissents about a deacon or elder, they're personally contacted and, and we interact with them about what the problem they had uh, 
Okay, great. So that's a general thing, okay, yeah. Great. I, I might mention on our BER website, we have a whole series of vi videos on decision making, getting into a lot of this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So I'd love to get some of your stuff on there to complement what we have already. Well, I don't, I'm not, I'm, all I have is anecdotes. You guys have been exposed <laughs> to much more than I have. Um, uh, let's go in a different direction. Um, you know, we've been talking about the church as a family. Mm -hmm. um, how should the ch church determine who's part of the family? The local church, who's in and who's out? Is it everybody who shows up on a Sunday oh, morning? Okay, okay. Is it uh, yeah. those that have signed a commitment yeah. that become formally members? Right, like, right. How do you, how do you do that without yeah. becoming over formalized? Yes. Um, God, I'm trying to figure out quite how to go with it. Well, I believe strongly in church membership. I think it's a place to publicly affirm a person's uh, commitment to the church that, and also their their. Uh, relationship come under the authority of the leadership and uh, and the accountability there, um, but I think what I've struggled to try to nail down over the years and I'll never nail it down is the distinction between brother as a our position in Christ we're all brothers right and brother as a relational reality. So while the people who are saved whether there are members of our church or regular attenders on Sunday are all. Uh, positionally my brothers and sisters in Christ, they're not all relationally my brothers. I don't have the kind of relationships with them that we've seen and we've talked about here this morning. You can't have that many relationships with that many people. So the, the, this kind of stuff we've talked about really has to cash out in smaller groups of people, uh, home fellowship groups, around a leadership team, an elder board, uh, whatever it has to be. And uh, one of the areas where we've... Uh, applied it a little bit is in the area of church discipline. Okay. When I was uh, uh, a young Christian, I remember sitting in a church and uh, one Sunday evening they kicked a guy out of the church. I forget even quite why now, but it, I remember it was a very, very awkward, kind of nasty deal. Uh, and the reason it was is because a lot of the people who were there didn't even know this guy. They didn't know this back, didn't know anything about this. And so the whole idea of disfellowshipping people at a church-wide service began to set ill with me. Having said that, it's necessary at times. In the same church, we had a heretic. This guy sang in the choir who was putting flyers on the cars uh, 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 undermining the doctrine of the deity of Christ. Well, to protect everybody, newcomer and member alike, we needed to call him out on Sunday and just do the right thing and, 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 and identify him for the congregation and tell them that he was a wolf in sheep's clothing, basically. But that's seldom the case. So when I go over to the church discipline passage in Matthew, it's very interesting. It's one of the places the brother terminology spikes in the New Testament. And when we think of brother, not positionally, but relationally, the, the idea of doing church discipline where we might have brothers by position, but not relationally there, uh, is really kind of counter counterproductive. And so we had a fellow who decided he was gonna, didn't want to be married anymore. No grounds for divorce. And uh, we, we take this divorce thing on a case-by-case -case basis. I can think of a couple people in our church who used to be married. They're still in our church. And I'm not going to tell you how or why, but uh, I don't... Uh, at any rate, this guy obviously uh, would, would have been blatantly sinning leaving his wife. And so what we did is we, uh, we you know, we confronted him one-on-one, uh, uh, -on -one, then we you know, brought two or three people, chatted with him, and then there was time to tell it to the church. Now, what are we going to do? 
Uh, we're gonna tell everybody on Sunday that uh, we'll call him Bill. Bill's bailing out on his wife. My goodness, of our five, 600 people on Sunday, maybe 40 know Bill. Uh, so what we did, Bill was, and his wife were involved in a small group of 15, 18 people. They were very, very close with each other for numbers of years. So that's where we did our church discipline. That, those were their real siblings in a practical, relational way. Now whether that was right or the best thing to do, it was, it's an anecdote. It's one, one time, but, it, but it's the kind of, it shows where we're trying to wrestle with exactly what your question is. Who are our brothers? So in a sense, it's the, ex the extent of the exposure should correspond to the extent of the offense. You know, however many people have been uh, offended by the sin or been exposed to the sin, they're the ones that would be most important to be made aware of that. Yeah, to, to a, some degree. To a degree, that's, yeah, yeah. yeah so okay. Anyway, it's, it's, it's a challenge, though. Yeah, your question is, a, is a, not an easy one. How do we balance the priority of individual families versus the church as a family? Okay. Yeah. I'm just reading the question as it is. I'll let you take it from there. Yes, I actually didn't share with you guys the most scandalous part of my writing and research, the idea that the church family is more important than your natural family. But uh, the key is, again, first is view the church as a relational entity and not as a programmed institution. And then it helps me to kind of see my family as embedded in the broader church family and finding its health as part of the broader church family and mission. I watched, uh, uh, I guess Alex or somebody, uh, one of your elders, just you know, grabbing these kids around here and the cross-generational stuff that clearly goes on here. Uh, Hillary was only part right. It, it takes a village, doesn't take a village to raise a kid, it takes a church to raise a, a child. Mm. And when we get that, all of a sudden the church will take the priority it should have. But it has to be the right kind of church. It has to be a relational, intergenerational church that's not just shoving our kids in life stage ministries, but integrating them together with other families and so they can grow. Uh, and I think one of the, uh, the, the keys is saying no to this lie that our culture gives us is somehow to be successful human beings, our kids need to have every single experience that's out there. So that Monday night they need to go to ballet and Wednesday night they need to go to Awana and Thursday night they need to go to karate and Sunday afternoon they need to go to soccer. And we put our kids on this treadmill where as consumers, we take, take advantage of all these things and we end up and our kids grow up and they leave the church because they've never really become part of the church family. So my co-pastor Brandon, his strategy is he lets his kids choose one, out, one extracurricular activity and then make sure that they're around the church family, not even in formal situations, just hanging out at church with people of all ages, in all contexts, hours and hours and hours, and embeds his family in the church in such a way that his kids really get the picture and that the reason that we're on this planet not to see the church as a consumer institution to grow in my spiritual life but to give my life away to this thing we call Christian community in the church to reach the world for Christ and it starts with our families. It starts with our families. So I think the start is to have an organic view of church and then get off the treadmill that our culture seems to think yeah. is so important. Right. We have in our uh, area, uh, strong Asian population, a lot of Asian uh, students at Talbot, a lot of there's Asians in our church, and every culture has its blind spots. Uh, for many of our Asians, it's, it's education. I mean, their idea of a successful kid is a doctor, okay? Uh -huh. Not a missionary, and they're very, very disappointed. Well, these are Christian parents when their kids become missionaries, very disappointed. You wanna be a pastor, a missionary? You wanna go to seminary? No, no, you need to go to medical school. And so, this is the kind of stuff that I think is uh, when we talk about the family and the church. You know, it's interesting as you're talking, it made me think of one of those 31 qualifications for an elder is to be hospitable. 
and talk about bringing your family together with the church as a family. When our kids were young especially, we would always invite the visiting missionaries over, we'd invite the elders over, people that were living out their Christian walk in a real way, we wanted our children exposed to that. So sitting Thank around you. the table, we'd, yeah. we'd encourage our kids to ask questions, and so often the adults would turn and answer us, and we would say, no, 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 our, our kids ask the question. <laughs> so they got used to interacting, and they now, even though they're both in their 30s, they look very fondly at some of those brothers and sisters outside of our physical family that have been so influential That's in their exactly lives. That's exactly what we're talking about here. Yeah, exactly, yeah. amen. I was sharing with these guys over, I forget what I shared with who, when, but we adopted a single gal kind of into our family. She's about my age, became my wife's best friend. She's our worship uh, director, and she's married to Jesus and the church. And uh, uh, she became a real mentor to my daughters. And my youngest daughter, just a few months ago, we were sitting over lunch, uh, Joanne and I and the two girls, and Rachel said, you know, I am one-third daddy, one-third mommy, and one-third Margie. And I thought to myself, that's remarkable, and that is wonderful. That is exactly what we're after. And this is the kind of thing you're uh, talking about. And that's not to advocate our role as parents uh, by any means. It's just to realize uh, we are inadequate, mm. and we need one another. Mm. And our kids need a bigger vision than to grow up and be successful Americans, folks. They need to grow up and be successful warriors for Jesus, and that can only happen in the community of the church. 